All right. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. That's where we're putting in. Acts 2 verse 40. Uh, Recently, this week, I was watching a YouTube video a friend sent me. It was trying to explain why Jurassic Park, a movie made more than 25 years ago, can look so much more realistic than the modern-day sequels. Have you noticed this? Have you watched a scene from the old Jurassic Park recently? Way more realistic. The new ones have that sort of CGI glossy fakeness to it. How is it possible that those 1993 dinosaurs are still so thrilling and effective when they didn't have the benefits of cutting-edge computing that are available to studios today? The person who made the video clearly knows a lot about filmmaking. It was really interesting. He broke down a lot of stuff. He was clearly either a film student or a cinematographer himself. And he was convinced that much of the failure of the modern Jurassic Park movies to capture our sense of wonder has to do with the mechanics of cinematography. He says, well, they're shooting in the wrong aspect ratio, and the angles and the blocking should be done the way it was done before in 93. His uh, contention was that if the current filmmakers would just follow Spielberg's methods, the sequels would have a better chance of living up to the original when it comes to realism and potency and effectiveness. It really was a very interesting video essay. I, I really enjoyed it. Now, I'm calling this series through the book of Acts, Those Were the Days, because it is a history book, and these these passages detail what really happened after Jesus' ascension and how the gospel took root and spread through the known world in a continuing story that still finds sequels in our lives today. But Those Were the Days also sort of references the fact that Acts is often looked back upon as an idyllic blueprint of the way a church should pattern itself. It's often said that if we just did what they did in the first century, then we would unlock the power of Acts-style Christianity in our own lives and in our own churches. And probably the most popular passage for that way of thinking is the one that we're going to be reading tonight. The first days of the Jerusalem church are often held up as the purest pinnacle of church organization. And it's true that what we're about to read is astounding. It's awe-inspiring. It, it warms our heart as believers, and we're excited about it. The work of God doing incredible things through thousands of people. But the question that is demanded when we read this passage is whether what we see at the close of Acts 2 is a blueprint for us to mimic or not. Is this the ideal format that we should work toward and and try to recapture in our own local church today? And so let's take a look at these verses and hopefully discover where we find some differences and where we find some similarities. Starting in verse 40, it says, And with many other words... He testified, he being Peter, and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. We spent the last two weeks looking at the portion of Peter's sermon that was uh, recorded for us. Here we're told that he said a lot more things to everybody there. And he called them to spiritual action, called them to be saved, to make a decision concerning Jesus Christ. He wasn't trying to berate them into the kingdom. He wasn't trying to argue them into belief. You can't do that. That's never going to work. But they did need information, and they did need to make an actual choice. And the information he gave them culminated in that moment of decision, whether they were going to accept God's gift of salvation or reject God's gift of salvation. 
We note that being saved from this perverse generation did not mean that these Christians would then withdraw from the city or the presence of unbelievers. They weren't, he didn't say, okay, we're going to get saved and then now we're going to go high up into the hills and no one will ever see us again. We're just going to seclude ourselves away so that we're not bothered by anybody. That's not what he meant. In fact, they'd spend the rest of their lives rubbing elbows with those who didn't believe and they would preach the gospel to them. It also doesn't mean that the Christians here would always be saved from the hatred and persecution that was coming from the people around them. Quite the contrary, of course. We know that. But ultimately, what he's saying is, as born-again believers, they would be safe in the arms of God, securely delivered into glory, saved from the judgment that was coming uh, on unsaved humanity. Verse 41 Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. We like to say that the first church was a megachurch. Sometimes Christians argue over what the quote-unquote right size of a local church should be. Should it be more than 1,000 people, less than 1,000 people? I've seen uh, different teachers say that after you get to 200 people, it's impossible to really be what a church is supposed to be, and so you should never have more than 200 people. I recently read a book from a very famous Christian author and pastor who says, no, actually, you need to split it at 20 people, and you need to, you know, then establish another church. And of course, then we, especially here in the West, uh, recognize that there are lots and lots of great churches that are thousands of people. 5,000 people, 10,000 people, 15,000 people gathering together. And so there is argument out there over what the right size is for a local church. As far as the Bible is concerned, we're never given a quota and we're never given a cutoff. The church in Jerusalem was many thousands of people at first, on the very first day. Other congregations we'll encounter in the book of Acts were so small they could meet in a little home. And the same is true today, of course, and that's a great thing. Our God is a God of variety. Just look at the animal kingdom. Our God loves variety, and that's a good thing. It should be the spirit that calls local churches into being. You see, the, the, the question isn't, does your church have a certain number of people? The question should be, did the spirit found this church, or did men found this church, right? Did the spirit lead and gather people together? Or was it the work of of men who are mad at some other Christians and said, well, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to take our ball and go home. That's more of the important thing. Did the Spirit lead? Did the Spirit gather? Did the Spirit establish a church in a location? And so the problem is when people come along and say that, well, it's wrong to go to a mega church because it's mega. And if that's how you feel, then you wouldn't have been able to attend the church in Jerusalem. Other people feel that, well, I can't go to a church that's not large. I I have to be able to go to a church that has a lot of resources and a lot of people and a lot of things going on. Uh, There's really realistically no benefit to a very small church. If that's your feeling, well, you wouldn't have been able to attend a church in, say, Philippi or one of the other churches in the book of Acts. And so we don't want to have that kind of mentality about like, well, there's a certain number that is right and a certain number that is not right. The goal isn't to hit a certain number, be it large or small. The goal is to be part of the work of God in a community, according to his plan at the time. And we see it here. The disciples didn't go out and recruit 3,000 people. They didn't have a plan to have, you know, 3,000 by 3 p.m. They didn't do anything like that, as if the church was some sort of pyramid scheme and that they went out and, you know, recruited people. These souls were added to them. 
And notice a couple things about that phrase, added to them. First, the soul was the unit of measure that day, as far as God was concerned. And that's a wonderful thing, because every soul is equal, right? We have that understanding. Your soul and my soul, there's not one that's better than the other. A soul is a soul, right? The membership and belonging in the church had absolutely nothing to do with uh, a social status or prominence or resources or desirability with strength or weakness or anything like that. God doesn't need skilled people or beautiful people or wealthy people. He can create international ministries out of the lives of people who are paralyzed or limbless or, or anybody, right? We've seen that. And so the idea is that you devote yourself to him, you deliver your soul to him, and then you see what he can do with your life. But second, we see that it says these 3,000 were added to them, to the group. In verse 1, they had been 120 in one accord, right? Acting as one group, even though they were 120 individuals, united in heart and mind. But now it was roughly 3,120, still just put together, unified, connected with one another. And as members of Christ's body, what we learn here is that we're not simply affiliated with one another. Like if you saw someone on the street wearing the same, you know, baseball team's hat as you're wearing, oh, another Angel fan. That, that's not what the church is. We're told that we're built together as a building. We're joined and knit and connected by God as one body whose members depend upon each other and care for each other. And we know that they were not added to the apostles' squad. It wasn't that a thousand were added to Peter that day. It was that three thousand were added to the whole, that they were one unit together. And so it's fine to have favorite Bible teachers or to be interested. And we have such a great access to lots of great teaching from you know, people both past and present. And that's a great thing. But we remember that we follow after Jesus Christ and we are part of his body. We're not just the part of the following of a human teacher. They were added to the whole. Now, before we move on, we should commend the disciples for their wonderful flexibility. No one had made any plans to have a baptism that day. Have you ever planned a baptism service for 3,000 people? I haven't. Think of how crazy that would be for a second. That you were in a place where there were three... First, try to just imagine 3,000 people out in the courtyard here. And they... They, well, there's more than 3,000 people, but 3,000 who want to be there, who got saved and now want to be baptized. And you said, okay, where are we, we going to do that? How are we going to do that? And the disciples were really flexible. They kept pace with what God was doing that day, and they adapted themselves accordingly. This would have been no small feat. This has been a huge thing, by the way. We just had a baptism on Sunday, and I did the timing on the video. It took us about 100 seconds per person to, to baptize. We baptized seven people on Sunday, and we averaged about 100 seconds per person, right? And if one person was baptizing the 3,000, it would have taken them 83 hours. So they probably didn't do that. But then I was wondering, well, who baptized? Did all 120 believers, the, you know, the first 120 baptized people, was it just the 12? Were you baptized? And then they turned and said, now you baptize the next person behind you? I mean, we just don't know, but it would have been a really remarkable adventure, quite an adventure to get this crowd moved to water and then moved through this baptism service. 
And I'm sure that it wasn't just some mechanic, okay, dunk, okay, dunk, okay, dunk. I mean, they were having a moment here, a spirit-filled, just godly, worshipful moment as they were going through this, as these people had given their lives to Christ and been born again. And they said, well, let's go figure out how to get everybody baptized. What great flexibility. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The life of the church here is characterized in these sort of four categories or these four activities. We're told that these new believers devoted themselves, and the phrasing means constant attention to these things. This is all they did. This is what they spent their days doing. First, there was the teaching of the apostles. The church was not going to be held up by feelings or by experiences, but by the truth of God's revelation handed down through this doctrine, the teaching of the apostles. God has gone to great lengths to record and protect and deliver the scriptures into your hands. And if a local church wants to be faithful to the Lord, if the local church wants to be anything like Uh, what we see here, it must continue to teach the whole counsel of God. And if a person or a group comes along attempting to redefine the Bible in a way that is in contradiction to what was taught by the apostles, well, Paul says in Galatians, let God's curse fall on them. See, this is the easiest way to tell if a group is not Christian, right? We would identify, say, what we call cults. They come along and they say, yeah, we're Christian, but by the way, we have new teaching." The apostles didn't get it quite right. There's a new doctrine. We have new revelation. The Bible's very clear. You can immediately dismiss and write that off. There is no new revelation. Once for all, the teaching was received through the apostles, and then God has gone to great lengths to protect that teaching and to package it up for us and deliver it to us, the Word of God, which you can access, you know, in the Bible or on an app or anywhere, right? And so when a group or a teacher comes along and says, ah, well, I've got a new teaching, Paul said, hey, listen, whether it's me or anyone else, or if an angel comes down from the sky and says he has a new teaching that's in contradiction to what you received from the apostles, God's curse needs to fall on that person. So first, they were a church that taught God's word. And second, they were a church of fellowship. And fellowship here does not simply mean they were socializing a lot. It wasn't just that they hung out all the time, which they were, but that's not what it was about. The word here is much more significant than that. One of these great Greek words that has all sorts of meanings attached to it. Uh, It's a word that means intimate association and a word that means participation. The person who is in godly, churchly fellowship is someone who has a share in the group, the word means. And in this sense, there weren't church members who were just consumers of the ministry, that they just came and consumed the ministry. To be in fellowship meant, by definition, that a person was a contributor to the ministry and to the church in some way. And this is exactly what is fleshed out in the epistles, where it's explained that each and every Christian is gifted to serve and to participate in some way, not just in the universal body of Christ, but in your local church as well. Third, we are told that they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Many scholars believe this is a reference to the Lord's Supper, that they were just taking communion nonstop. Communion, 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 which is a great thing. Now, I'm encouraged by the fact that when they got together, 
right? We're going to see in a moment that they had a lot of needs and there was, you know, as we move through the book of Acts, obviously there's a lot of difficulty. Life was not easy for these folks. But we see here that when they got together, their focus as people was not simply on their own felt needs or what they wanted to get from God, but we see that they had a great focus on remembering what the Lord had done for them and his great future plan for his people. Taking the Lord's Supper, remembering what he did and what he was still going to do, and focusing out of self and toward the Lord, rather than just gathering together and say, okay, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. What can I get? How can you encourage me? What can God do for me? They remember, okay, God wants to do things for you, but what about what God has done for you? What about what the cross means? What about the coming future kingdom and the the marriage feast of the Lamb? And so it's an encouragement to me that they made it a priority to think about those things. And fourth, they gave constant attention to prayers. And this doesn't just mean individually, but in the context here, it means they were gathering again and again for prayer meetings together. Prayer in the Bible, particularly in the book of Acts, is shown to be an indispensable and inexhaustible resource given to the church. And we're also shown that when God's people get together and pray, it accomplishes what other efforts simply cannot in the church. We may not fully appreciate it all of the time, but prayer is something that can do things that other things cannot do. And even though we, in our sort of American do-it-ourself culture, get things done, let's be entrepreneurs, let's build things, let's make things, let's fix things, let's conquer things, right? Those are that sort of spirit of individualism and invention. I mean, that's part of what makes up our culture and therefore makes up our mindset as people oftentimes. But prayer is maybe foreign to that way of thinking, but we read in the Bible the, the prayer is inexhaustible and it is indispensable and it is absolutely necessary. And we uh, would do well to just ponder more on the need we have, each of us as individuals and as a group, to be praying together. Verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. A deep sense of awe characterized their mindset and their meetings. Ours is a culture that loves distraction. We love shallowness. Uh, Our default mindset works against the reverential fear of God. But close communion with the Lord demands this fear, this awe of God. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the starting point for things like spiritual wisdom and spiritual security. That's the starting point. It must be foundational to us as it was to them here. And uh, all of us need to be realizing that, okay, I have to adjust my thinking. My natural mind and my natural bent is different than the mind of Christ that has been given to me as a child of God. And I need to engage the mind of Christ and realize, okay, I need to make time to fear God in my thinking. Not just, yeah, yeah, I fear God, but have, yeah, I want to be in awe of God, of who he is and what he's done and what that means and how he loves me. And, and, and I know at least for myself, I mean, it's so easy for us to just be constantly distracted, 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 right? Our whole sort of entertainment culture right now is built upon being distracted. And yet we see here that what is foundational to the church was the fear of God, the uh, deep sense of awe that they had for the Lord. Verse 44, now all who believed who were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and div- uh, divided them among all as anyone had need. 
The birth of the church coincided with a Jewish feast. We've seen that uh, the last few studies. And that meant that there were thousands of -of out-of-towners there in Jerusalem on pilgrimage. They were visiting from faraway lands. Many of them had gotten saved and now were staying around, at least temporarily. And again, we note the gracious flexibility of the disciples. What if tonight we had to house 3,000 people? Uh, That would be quite a challenge. Uh, But they rose to that challenge. Now, they were constantly having to think on their feet as they saw the Spirit moving in their midst. With hundreds or thousands of people far from home, of course there were going to be a lot of physical needs that cropped up. In response, the other believers there were stirred up by the Spirit to intervene on behalf of their brothers and sisters. We see no command going out from the apostles. We see no official charter being drawn up detailing how many possessions a person is allowed to have until they have to start selling stuff. As God was working wonders through the twelve, he was also working wonderfully in the heart of the rest of the people to do his work of hospitality and generosity and showing love and compassion. And he was doing so in particular situations where needs arose. It says, as anyone had need. As these particular needs came up, the Spirit worked on the hearts of people and said, yeah, I will cover that need. I will work in that situation. What we don't see is Peter saying there's a bunch of people, there's going to be needs, and so here's the system we're going to put forward. Everyone needs to contribute 85% of their possessions into a big pool, and then we're going to have a bureaucracy to divvy it out. That's not what we see here, not at all. We just see the Spirit moving and working on the lives of individuals, and they are doing great things through His power. And remember, this was all done without phones or internet or geolocation. They didn't need a scheme or a system at this point. It was just accomplished as the Spirit led and people followed. Imagine that. A stranger from a faraway land is living in Jerusalem. You may even have some sort of language barrier with him. They have a need, and the Spirit uses you to meet that need. And you didn't have any internet message board, and you didn't have any ticket system. You didn't have anything like that. It was just the Spirit moving and people being in fellowship together and praying together and being connected. And the Lord was able to accomplish all of these things. Verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We often think of the first church as a house church, and in part that's true. They met from house to house, but what do we see here? We see them gathering together in the temple. They weren't just a house church. Sometimes we read books or things, oh, the first century church was a house church, therefore we should be a house church, but they weren't exactly a house church. The temple complex would give them the ability to have much larger gatherings than any house could accommodate. And so, though regular groups were meeting house to house, the first church was also meeting in a large, beautiful building every single day. And as they did these things, gladness and humility were two of the most visible characteristics to the people around them. These Christians were joyful and contented. They weren't complainers. They weren't grumblers. They were constantly heard praising the Lord. And each day, God's work continued, and the church grew and grew. You know, I doubt that since Pentecost morning, there has ever been a day in human history where someone was not added to the church. Now, that's speculation, but it makes complete sense. Every single day, 
It's a very pleasant thought, I think, that every day someone or many someones are being brought from darkness to light as the Lord works and as the Spirit moves, bringing people from death to life. And we're commissioned to be a part of that work. It's daily work, daily work that we get to be involved with. And so the question is, is Acts 2, 40 through 47, a blueprint of how we do it? Should we mimic exactly what we see here, especially in the way we organize our church? the communalism and the daily house-to-houseness of the church. There are groups and teachers who feel this is the framework with which we should be applying uh, church organization. And certainly we want to see God moving mightily in our midst. So is this a formula for us to see that happen? Well, we have to come to the conclusion that the communal structure of the church in Acts 2 is not a blueprint for every church. We know that for one thing because we never see it replicated in the rest of the New Testament. They did not franchise this idea or this method or this pattern. They just didn't. Paul didn't set up churches this way. And later we'll see that many local churches depended on wealthy, land-owning believers who owned sizable homes and had meeting places there. After all, Christians weren't allowed to build buildings for worship until hundreds of years after this point. Even in this context, the Jerusalem communal church... Peter is going to tell Ananias and Sapphira that their personal property was theirs to do with what they wished. There was no prescription for them that they had to sell land and that they had to do this or that they had to do that. There was no command or program established by the apostles. What we're seeing here is a dramatic and particular work of the Spirit in a dramatic and particular situation. So why did God work this way through the first church here at the beginning? I'll venture a couple of suggestions. First of all, It would not be long until these Christians, these very Christians, are going to be scattered out by violent persecution out of Jerusalem and into the wider Roman Empire. And then they would go and carry the gospel to places unknown, back home or far away. And really then, if we look back, this live-in church experience becomes in hindsight like a school of ministry that they would definitely need. Think about it. You become a Christian in a relatively short time. Commentators don't always agree on the timeline, but maybe in a couple years, you're going to be kicked out of Jerusalem running for your life, but you're going to go with the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, and you're going to hit home and maybe be the only person that's ever heard the gospel in your community. And now it's on you to be the church planter and to be the bringer of the gospel, to be the herald of Jesus Christ. And so it's a great thing that they had this intense, concentrated preparation of teaching and of prayer and of communion and of fellowship and all of these things. You know, we see in the Bible that God often takes time to prepare people for service. You think about Moses. He needed 40 years of preparation. You think of David. He needed time learning to be a shepherd and learning to be a king and all these things. We think of Paul even. He's going to go into Arabia and spend time being prepared by the Lord. Second, this communal oneness would have gone a long way to protect the fledgling church from the natural divisions we as humans always struggle with. The Lord was working to establish from the beginning that there weren't different classes of Christians. Think of Judaism at the time. There were all these different classes of how religious you were. Are you a Pharisee? Well, what kind of Pharisee are you? And what tribe are you from? Or are you a Sadducee? And what about this? And what about that? And there were all of these divisions and all of these little groups, right? And from the beginning, the Lord was saying what? No, you're one. One accord. One body. One group. One. 
Not that there was like, well, you have the super awesome apostles and everybody else. From the beginning, we've seen here that, yes, the apostles were called to a particular office and the Lord gave them particular responsibility. But as far as gifting and, and the Holy Spirit and all that, Peter's saying, you'll receive the Holy Spirit just like we receive the Holy Spirit. It's not that we got a higher octane Holy Spirit than you're going to get. It's that the Lord said, you're going to be all brought together as one, one body, one church. And so it's a great little, pro, it's a great little arrangement that the Holy Spirit put together here at the very beginning. Because your place in society didn't, doesn't matter when it comes to the body of Christ. Rich or poor, slave or free, talented or debilitated, everybody has equal place and equal footing in the house of God. All are welcome. All can be used. All can take part. And so they were one. Yes, there are different responsibilities and, and God calls different individuals to different particular things. But all one, one commission together. If the communal structure of Acts 2 was what God wanted for every local fellowship, then we'd expect it to be replicated somewhere else in the book, but we just don't see that. And if this was a magic formula for peak performance, we wonder why this very church in Jerusalem struggled so much with things like racism and legalism, which we're going to see in coming chapters. It's not that this was a magic formula that if we would do this, we would be real Christians. And sometimes you get that vibe from people who look back and say, well, those were the days if we could just do what they did in Jerusalem. You know, the Jerusalem church had some real, real problems. And we're going to get to those, and God's grace is going to cover those and deal with them. But there's not a magic formula being unlocked here. What we see in this passage is not the establishment of a formulaic structure. What we see is the Holy Spirit moving on a particular group of people in a particular set of ways for a particular set of circumstances. And he does that throughout the rest of the book, and he continues to do that today. Depending on the time and the place and the people, the way he organizes the church is going to be personal like it always is. And this makes perfect sense. The underground church in China right now cannot operate logistically the same way as a free church in Hanford can. That's just reality. However, no matter the time or the place or the circumstances, the character of the church should remain the same as what we're seeing here. The question is not whether we replicate a communal organization, but instead the question is this, are we being faithful to the leading of the Holy Spirit and to those characteristics that define the church in, the, in every time and place? There are characteristics that define God's church in every era and in every time, every place, among every group of people. We see some of those characteristics demonstrated here in Acts 2. First, this church was glad. They were glad when they received salvation. They were glad when they were living out their Christian life. The psalmist says, Lord, you have made me glad through your work. Part of being a Christian is choosing to allow God's gladness to do its work in our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our words. That's always characteristic of God's people. That's what makes it possible for Paul and Silas to be singing hymns in the Philippian dungeon, right? Second, this church was a Bible-teaching church. And that is a necessary characteristic for every church everywhere in every generation. I think we can stand confidently in our local devotion to teaching God's Word here as a church. Not just teaching things that are pleasant or palatable or popular, but teaching the doctrines of the Bible as delivered by the apostles. Third, this church was a fellowshipping church. Remember, that doesn't just mean being social and hanging out. It was a place of active participation. Here at Calvary, we try to give many opportunities, lots of different opportunities for people to participate in worship and prayer and service and church life. 
whether you are actually sharing and contributing, is that's between you and the Lord. It's not my business. That's your business. And it's your business between you and your Savior. You're a part of the body of Christ, but if that flow of fellowship is not taking place, if you're not participating, it's kind of like a finger that has lost blood flow, right? We call that gangrene, and it becomes a real problem for everybody. And so that's between you and the Lord. Every Christian in every church is called to live in unified fellowship, in that koinonia, in the New Testament sense. Fourth, this church was a church that broke bread often. You know, in recent years, we here at Calvary have been increasing the frequency of having communion together. We'll have a chance even tonight. And hopefully that's been a blessing to your spiritual life. Fifth, the church was a praying church. You know, like communion, we keep trying to increase the ways that we can pray as a group together. Uh, It's part of our men's morning study. It's become a staple of our nights here at midweek. We have, for many years, a Saturday night prayer meeting, and quite honestly, it's always been very lightly attended, almost not attended. Uh, That's just reality. Here's what I'll note from our text tonight. Even the apostles needed regular prayer meetings. They needed it. They desired it. They wanted it. Guys who had walked with Jesus face and seen him face to face and saw him transfigured. Guys who were going to be the writers of the New Testament. Guys who were working miracles and signs and wonders. They were saying, man, we got to get to a prayer meeting like right now. Didn't we have one yesterday? Yeah, we need another one today. We need another one tomorrow. We need to be praying together. One commentator I read pointed out that the typical small attendance at prayer meetings perhaps indicates that we don't really believe we need to pray. And listen, I don't say this to burden us or to condemn anyone. I don't know your schedule. I don't know what's going on. Maybe you attend other prayer meetings. That's fine. But the New Testament church is always called to be a praying church. That's not unique to Acts 2. That's throughout the New Testament. We're all called to be praying together as a group. The sixth characteristic we can see here is church was a generous church. It's clear that there was no blanket command for everyone to sell everything, but the New Testament does speak very clearly about the absolute essential of generosity. James said, if we see the needs of our brothers and do nothing to help them, how can we say we have a living faith? He says, your faith's not alive. Where's your generosity? John would write in his epistle, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so the compassionate generosity that we read about in Acts 2 wasn't just something confined to them. It wasn't just something that he did through that congregation. It is characteristic of God's church throughout all of the years of the church. It's expressed differently in various times and in various places, but it's characteristic for all of us. Generosity. It's part of the Christian life. It's easy to look at a passage like this one and think that it's the structure that needs to be replicated. Kind of like that YouTube video. His point was, well, you know, if the filmmakers would just sort of copy Steven Spielberg, they'd be able to catch lightning in a bottle like he did with the first Jurassic Park. But you know what? If you step back and think about it for about five seconds, you know that that's not true. Even in the movies, we know that's not how it works. And we know that because Steven Spielberg then made Jurassic Park to the Lost World and everybody hated it because it was no good, right? Anybody here think that Jurassic Park to the Lost World was a great movie? Typically, nobody does because it wasn't. And so it can't just be that, well, copy what he did and it will be magically a good movie. It will do what you want it to do. That's not how it works. 
And how much more to a spiritual degree? The power of the first church wasn't found in their organizational structure any more than Samson's power was found in the length of his hair. It didn't have anything to do with it. It was the work of God moving in the midst of faithful people who were surrendered to him, and they followed. God works in many different ways, but that work will always share common characteristics like those we've listed. Generosity and unity and prayer, the study of the word, gladness and worship, the fear of the Lord. We are all called to continue steadfastly in these things because this is not just the work of God in Acts 2, but it's in the work of God in the rest of the book and the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the church age, including tonight. And so tonight I'd invite all of us to take a look on the shelves of our hearts, take an inventory, see whether we're stocked up on these characteristics or whether we could use a fresh filling in some area. We can trust the Lord not only to show us but to help us and to supply us with all that we need to continue the wonderful work he did begin here in this passage. Amen.